As we come to John chapter 5, I am reminded of a court case I read about where there was a wealthy financier who is a defendant in a multi-million dollar civil suit. At the trial, he was called to the witness stand, and the first question that was put to him by the counsel for the plaintiff came to him, and his reply was this, I decline to answer that question on the advice of my counsel. Oh, the attorney asked, and do you refuse on the grounds that the answer might incriminate you? I decline to answer that question on the advice of my counsel, he said again. Oh, and is it on the grounds that the answer might cause you some public disgrace, he said to the wealthy man on the witness stand. I decline to answer that question on the advice of my counsel as well. Exasperated, the attorney asked, And did your counsel tell you not to answer any of my questions? He responded, I decline to answer that question on the advice of my counsel as well. Clearly, here was a man who was reluctant to testify about himself, as is often the case in these days. So much dishonesty that goes on even in the courtroom. But in contrast to that attitude and that approach, we come to John 5 and here is Jesus Christ who freely and daringly testifies about himself and who he is, making very clear claims to be the Son of God, equal to the Father, doing all that he does because he moves in one will with the Father. And I thank God for this. I am studying John along with you to get to know Jesus Christ. After all these years of being a Christian, some of you are brand new Christians, you're excited, you're wondering what's ahead. I want to tell you, there's nothing but great fellowship with God ahead if you will press in on Him. And after years of seeking the Lord, I'm studying here not just to learn so I can give another message, I'm studying to close in on Christ. And I can tell you that if you will study the Scriptures to find Him, you will find Him. And you will have a relationship with Him. And He will speak to you. And He will continue to unfold more and more and more of His glory to you. And you need not ever have a dull and boring year in the Christian life. May I say this? The only Christians that are having dull, boring years are those who have been deceived by Satan to turn away from the Scriptures, to plow elsewhere, and they are being ripped off from everything Christ died to give them in terms of fulfillment in a relationship with God your Creator. So we come and study Christ and I thank God for what He says about Himself. I want to know. This is why I came to Him. I came to Christ, you know, because I was guilty for my sin and I wanted relief. I came because I was lonely and I wanted my loneliness ministered to. I came because I wanted off drugs. I had all those reasons for coming. I came because I wanted my life straightened out. I came because I hoped that if I got to know God and prayed to Him, He'd give me a wife. I came for all those reasons. But you know what? None of them were the primary reason. The primary reason I came to God was that I wanted to know God. And I was told that Jesus Christ was the way to know God. So I'm studying the Gospel of John to get to know Jesus Christ. I hope you are too. And I hope that you really pay attention to the things that we learn here and study here. You know, when we were talking about the shepherds Sunday, so much that was suggestive in that text 
reading the narrative of the birth of Christ. You remember when the shepherds went back to their jobs, they were rejoicing in not only the things that they had seen, but in the things that they had heard. And as I looked at that, I thought about that, and I wondered, I wonder if God's people come to church and, re- and rejoice in the things that they hear. So often, I know what it's like to be human and sit in, in church. So often, you're just critiquing the preacher. You spend the first 15 minutes wondering if he's on or not tonight. Wondering if he's got the anointing tonight. Wondering if he's going to say something that's going to zap you tonight. And then when it's all over, you kind of grade the preacher on a scale of 1 to 10. Was it a good night? Was it a bad night? Was it, an, was it okay? And, you know, should you have stayed home and watched TV? And all the, I know that all that goes through your head. But what I have found over the years is that if I can get past all of that, because we have a tendency to come in and sit down, if we're visiting, we're judging and comparing to the person we listen to most often. All these things are going on. But if we come in and sit down and listen to what God might say through the Scriptures, we almost never go away disappointed. Almost never. And I've had a shift in my own attitude in the last year in terms of listening to others. People that I wouldn't want to listen to before, and I'm not talking about heretics, but guys that sort of bored me, you know, that kind of thing. I have found that if I will listen with an open ear looking for Christ in the scriptures that they're teaching from, I always get blessed. And I find that I like them as well. So, here Christ shares so much about himself. Do you realize that in this chapter he has testified he is the Son of God? He has said very clearly that he is sent by the Father, that he is the source of all life, both physical and spiritual. He has made the staggering and shocking and non-evasive claim that he will be the judge of all men, which makes him the ultimate focus of all of history. All men will land face to face with Jesus Christ, alone in the end to be judged by him. He is the one then who will raise the dead and will one day empty every cemetery. I get them confused, you know, sometimes. Every seminary on earth. Cemetery, most of them, it's all the same anyhow. There are a few that are still living. But um, that was a Holy Spirit-led slip. Definitely not Freudian. But um, he will empty every graveyard on earth calling all men to stand before him. So he's made some staggering claims. Can you imagine what his listeners were feeling? And on a human level, you can understand why they'd be slightly skeptical. Here's a guy standing in front of him. I was watching the Jesus of Nazareth movie the other night, which, by the way, I like that movie. Given the fact it's from Hollywood, Catholic producer, you know, all of that. That that doesn't bother me at all. I like it. Lots of scripture in it. Very down-to-earth portrayal of a lot of things. I was watching that. I saw Jesus show up and he had this tattered robe on. It had spots that were all worn out. And I was looking at him thinking, peasant rabbi, there he is. He was standing before Pilate. And there he was standing before Pilate with his peasant rabbi outfit. And I was thinking, man, what that must have done to Pilate. They come in, the religious leaders, and making such a big kerfuffle about this Jesus who claims to be a king, and then they bring in this guy. And he's wearing this tattered robe of all things. And he just stands there and looks at him. And I thought, man, that must have blown Pilate's mind. Absolutely blown his mind. But you see, it's this type of individual standing in front of them who's claiming to be the Son of God, one with the Father, the judge of all men, and all of this, so you can understand on a human level why they would be slightly skeptical. 
And why they would look at him and think, well, how do we know you're even telling the truth? What is your evidence? I mean, you tell us these things. But do you have any other witnesses that would witness to the fact that you are indeed God? You can understand why they would think that way. It's kind of like if you were sitting in your living room and somebody came and knocked on the door and said, you know, your boss sent me over here. Oh, my boss. Well, come in, please, sit down. What does the boss have to say? Well, the boss has this to say. There's been a lot of changes down at the company, and as of tomorrow, you will be the vice president of the company. And you will get all that goes with that. Now, when you get an announcement like that, it is, of course, good news, but it's absolutely meaningless unless this individual really has come from the boss. I mean, if you call up the company right then on the phone and say, Hey, did you send a guy over here to tell me this such and such? And they say, We don't even know that guy. Then you realize you're the victim of some warped prank and that there's really no good news here after all. But if you call and they say, Oh, yes, absolutely. Is he wearing, you know, a red shirt and a pair of lime green pants? And yeah, that's him then you know that he sent for sure from the boss and you can get excited about the good news that he has to bring. Well, if these people can know, if we can know for sure that Jesus really, if I could put it this way, has been sent by the boss, then we can rejoice with the claims that he is making to be the Son of God. So he says in John 5.31, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying effectively is this. In your opinion, if I just testify to myself and leave it at that, you're going to say that's not enough. In your own mind, you're going to say it isn't enough for me to just say that. My son has picked up a phrase from me. And he seems to be spouting it out everywhere in all the wrong places. Talk is cheap. Something I use a lot myself. And you know how kids are. Well... He uses it everywhere now. You know, unwrapping presents the other day and Lori Beth opened a present and, Oh, wow, thank you, Daddy. And he yells out, Talk is cheap. <laughs> Whatever that man, you know, he's just trying it out to see how it works in different places. But that's the idea here. Talk is cheap. If you can't back it up, then why should we believe you? Now, you know in the Jewish mind why they would think that way because in Deuteronomy 19.15... It says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter will be established. So this is something that was part of their thinking. Always they were thinking, by the mouth of two or three witnesses something shall be established. So this sets the stage then for verses 32 on down through 47 where Jesus calls upon three different witnesses to say that he is indeed God. And the three witnesses that he calls upon, and you want to get this, they are all different expressions of really the Father's testimony to his deity. So that, look at verse 32. You see this here. He says, There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So, 
It would be very easy for you to read that statement and just because a thing about John the Baptist follows to think he's talking about John the Baptist. But he is not. What he is saying is this, you know, I've repeatedly claimed to be one with the Father and let me say this, uh, showing myself to be God is to be one with the Father. And I want you to know that the Father has surrounded me with witnesses that point to the fact that everything I've been saying is true. So this isn't just empty talk. It can be backed up by witnesses which you know about, which the Father has put in front of you on purpose. So the Father is the ultimate witness on my behalf. So he is behind the witnesses then that are brought forth in the rest of this narrative here. And there are three of them. He says, There is another who bears witness of me, verse 32, and I know that that witness which he witnesses of me is true. And that witness of the Father comes out in what he has to say in this sense. The witness of John, it's the Father's witness really through John, the witness of his works, which would be the Father's testimony through him with his works, and then the witness of the Scriptures, where the Father has the Scriptures, all the Old Testament Scriptures pointing to him. So these are the three witnesses, and they all come from the Father to validate all the claims he has made to be one with the Father. If you understand that, then the rest becomes pretty easy. So let's look at the first one. He points now to the witness of John. They all knew about John. There wasn't anybody in Israel that didn't know about John. He says in verse 33, You have sent to John. And the you here is emphatic. I want to get you guys involved now with the witness I'm bringing up. You have sent to John. You had involvement with John yourself. And he has borne witness to the truth. He was a burning and a shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So the idea here is this. John the Baptist bore witness to salvation through the Son of God. And he says, you even sent out a special committee to John the Baptist. That's how captivated you were by what he was doing out there in the ministry that he had. For example, you can see this. Turn in your Bible, just hold your thumb here, and then turn in, in your Bible back to the left to John chapter 1 to verse 19. You see exactly what Jesus is talking about. It says, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Notice, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. So he said, you sent unto John. This is exactly what he's talking about right here. So they come out and they say, who are you? I mean, all these people, all the people have gone after you. Who are you? And he confessed and he did not deny. He was very clear. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. I am not the Christ. And the reason he sent that is because his sole reason, think of this, John the Baptist's sole reason for existing on this planet was to testify of Jesus Christ, to be his forerunner, to testify of salvation in Christ alone. And when that ministry was done, so was John's life, and it ended very suddenly. When his time was up, his life was over, and he was taken to heaven. The only reason he existed on this planet was to announce the coming of the Son of God. So they said, who are you? And I said, he said, I am not the Christ, that's for sure. I am the one come to point to him. 
And he went on to tell them who Christ was. But you see, the reason he uses John as a witness is this. All the people believed that John was a prophet. Turn in your Bible and see this with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 to verse 2. There's another incident here where he is wrapped up in this situation with the religious leaders. And he goes again to John. God's ministry through John was so evident and obvious, it was undeniable that he was from God. So here in Luke 20, verse 2, they came to him and challenged him, and they said to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? Was John a prophet sent directly from God the Father, or was he just another guy with his own idea about religion? He said, if you answer me that question, I'll tell you where I get my authority. Where did John get his authority? You tell me, and I'll tell you. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, which means they backed up, they huddled up, and they were muttering to each other quietly, saying, hey guys, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? And if you believed him, then surely you already believe in me, because he pointed directly to me. So they knew they were trapped right then. And so in verse 6, they say, But if we say from men, that is authority from men, then all the people are going to stone us. Everybody's watching and everybody's listening. If we stop right now and say John the Baptist was just another man, he had his own ideas and he pointed to Christ and they were in cahoots, pointed to Jesus. If we say he's just another man, all the people see him to be a prophet, they'll stone us right now on the spot. So if we give the wrong answer here, our lives are in danger. So being the slippery, slimy guys that they were, they came back to Jesus and they said, well, we, we can't tell the answer to that. We don't know, and let's just drop this conversation. You see them slither away through the crowd. But the whole point I want to show you here is that all the people, they said, are persuaded that John was a prophet. So that's why Jesus points to John. Because John pointed to him. You see the circle of it all? And John was directly sent from God the Father for that reason. They thought John was a prophet. He was the first one in 400 years in Israel. And John the Baptist, do you know what he actually said regarding Jesus? What was it that he said? Why does Jesus point to him? What he said about Jesus was four specific things. Very important. He said that Jesus was the predicted Messiah of whom the prophets had written. And that was very clear. He said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would give his life as a sacrifice for men's sin. He said that Jesus was the one that would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He said that Jesus very clearly was the Son of God. And what Jesus Christ is saying in John 5 is... Everything John said about me is true. And all the people believe that John was a prophet sent directly from God. So I point you to John the Baptist who was sent directly from God as a witness to me that I am the Son of God that he says I am. Now, 
Now you see the heart of Jesus begin to come out in such a wonderful, practical, patient, and persistent way. Go back to John 5. And he effectively says, why am I taking the time to tell you all this? The idea is this. This whole thing is all about your salvation. Don't you get it? Look at John 5.34. He says, yet I do not receive testimony from man. I'm pointing you to John, yes. He says, but I don't need testimony from man. I know who I am. I'm not telling you this so I know who I am. I'm telling you this so you know who I am. But why am I going through all the trouble to go through all of this with you? I'll tell you why, he says, in verse 34. I say these things that you might be saved. I read that this week, and I just had to stop right there. And my initial knee-jerk reaction was this. Why do you even care? These guys are plotting to murder you. You just healed the man. They are so evil that all they can get out of it is a murder plot. This guy's laid here for decades. You come along, change his whole life. They can't appreciate that. They can't rejoice with the guy. All they can do is find fault with you for breaking the Sabbath. And basically their interpretation of the Sabbath. They want to kill you. And we have the rest of the account here. We know the rest of the story. We know how it ends. They do kill him. My question was, why do you even care? I say these things to you that you might be saved. Lord, why do you even care? Why don't you dump these guys? But yet, you see, this is the God I serve. This is my Christ. This is my Jesus. He does care. And these are the kind of people he cares about. And I have found that so often, the commitment of Jesus to save hard-hearted sinners wins out with them long after I've given up. You know what I'm talking about? You get a burden for someone, you start to pray for them, you start to witness to them, but oh, they don't respond the way you want them to. So you sort of slack off in your prayers for them. You sort of slack off in your witness to them. Then you kind of get revived a little bit. You see them at a holiday, whatever, like now. And you witness to them again. And all they do is come back hostile to you. And you tend to get the idea and the feeling, you know what, I don't think there's any hope for this person. And all the while you may forget how you were before you came around. I forget that. I forget that myself, honestly. It's been so long. I mean, that's natural. I forget it, and so do you. Jesus never forgets. He's here with these guys that want to kill him. They're hostile to him. They are hostile to him because indifference always leads to hostility. You cannot say no to Jesus without eventually becoming hostile. Eventually, you get hostile. Because the longer you say no, the harder God convicts you of your sin. And the more you have to reject that conviction, the more it makes you hostile. So here these guys are wanting to kill him, but he doesn't give up. I'm saying this because I want to save you. And I want to encourage you to pray and ask God to give you that same kind of commitment and compassion for lost people. That even when it looks like there's no hope and they're getting worse than ever, to realize that Jesus hasn't given up yet. Jesus, we see how he does it on the pages of this gospel and how patient he is and how committed he is. And I want to say this to you, you never know when somebody's defenses are going to suddenly come tumbling down. And even often at the point of their greatest argument. 
I read a story this week about, pastor shared this story about some years ago. He said I was sharing Jesus Christ with a very intelligent and highly educated electronics engineer. This man prided himself on his high IQ and his ability to argue a point of view logically and intellectually. As we talked, he argued vigorously that he had no need of a savior. But there came a point while we were talking, as he was still trying to maintain an intellectual argument, that all of a sudden the guy dropped to his knees. Right in the middle of this discussion, he just dropped to his knees. And he began to cry out to Jesus to come and to save him and to fill his heart. This pastor went on to say, for reasons that could never be rationally explained, all of his intellectual defenses had suddenly crumbled. I love that. Because there the Holy Spirit had invaded his heart. So often at the most hostile point, people are the closest. And what they're trying to do is keep up with the props mentally in their mind, their arguments they've held on to. And suddenly the Spirit just melts their heart and all their arguments come crashing down. And they find, there they are, standing there humble and broken and converted before God and loving every minute of it. Whereas a moment ago they were hating Christ. Now their heart is open, their heart is soft, it's gushing forth. All of a sudden with love for God... And now they know instantly they do know Him for the first time in their life. And they know that they'll never be the same again. I remember that moment in my life. And I knew that moment I would never be the same again. And I haven't been. So you see, you don't ever want to give up. I say these things to you that you might be saved. Praise God for a Savior that is a Savior indeed. Who's not put off by intellectual arguments. Who's not put off by bad motives toward him, who's not put off by blasphemers, people that take his name in vain. You know how bugged you get by that after you're converted. And how you forget you were one of those also. And how he changed your vocabulary. And now you're bugged by those that take his name in vain and all of that. You know, why don't people use some other word? Why do they have to use the name of our Christ? You ever wonder that? I mean, why don't they say... Jim Fremont, you know. <laughs> or why don't they say, oh, Sutter's Mill. You know, or why don't they say, George Washington Carver. Or why don't they say, Lafayette. Or why don't they say, oh, Henry VIII. Why don't they say, oh, Confucius. Oh, Buddha. Why does it have to be our Christ? Because they're convicted by our Christ. He loves them. He doesn't leave them alone. So they're trying to lash out back. But often when they get the worst, they're getting the closest. Don't give up. Jesus is a Savior indeed. So John bore witness to this salvation through the Son of God. That's why Jesus points to him. And I want to say another thing here. John was the kind of witness every Christian should be. Jesus says it right here. In John 5.35, he says, He was a burning and a shining lamp. What a commendation. You remember Jesus had said in Matthew 10.32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before the Father. Whether he said that before or after. The issue is that there was a point in time when Jesus said that. And this is a perfect example that he meant that. 
John, he's pointing to him as a witness, but he also puts in a commendation for John. And he says, you know, as he thinks back on John, probably John had just been killed because he says he was a burning and shining lamp. As he's thinking about him, his heart is warmed as he remembers what kind of a man of God he was. He, he says to this whole crowd, was a burning and a shining witness. And in that sense, John is an example of what all of us should be as a witness. Could God look down at you? Does he tonight? Does Jesus look at you? Could he say if he were to suddenly appear, this is my follower over here, a burning and a shining witness? Or if he was to show up suddenly now in our midst, would he have to say, over here is a burning and shining witness, but this one over here, you guys better pray for this one. Oh man, here is a bad witness. Here is something that's a contradiction of terms to Christianity. The thing about John is that he was a burning and shining witness all the way to the end. We may finish well by the grace of God and we may burn and shine all the way there if we will walk with God, that's all. What kind of a witness are you? I think that's so critical, especially now. I don't know where you land in your assessment of last day's events, but it seems to me we're near the end of the world. Seems to me, someone said to me the other day, I thank God that I live in the United States of America because it could be so much worse. Maybe it was today. But it could be so much worse for us. You see, we don't have a war in our country right now. And, and all these different... We have Bibles. We're studying them. And you see, you look around the world, it's so bad. There's such a need for burning, shining witnesses because, folks, we're near the very end before Christ comes back. And every moment that you live ought to be as a burning, shining witness for Him. I don't know if you caught the drift, but when I mentioned that John's only reason for living was to testify of Christ and be a witness for Him, I see no nobler calling than that. Maybe that went right on by you. Maybe you're thinking about this shirt you have on there, pretty sure you're going to take back tomorrow to Robinson's. Maybe it went right on by you. Because that's what happens. People sit in church and these things go right on by. John was a burning and a shining lamp. I do pray to God that all of us are. And we need to pray for each other that we are. Because we need to be that. And you know where we need to be it? Right here. Right where we live. Right where we work. Where do you work? I don't know where you work. But you ought to be a burning and shining lamp there. Where do you live? I don't know where you live. But you ought to be a burning and shining lamp there in your home. So much we could say about that. But John is a model of what every Christian should be in his witness. And Jesus just is thrilled to give that commendation to everyone that would listen. This man was a burning and shining lamp. And one other interesting thought about John. Jesus says he was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. That's fascinating to me. One of the things in the, in the church that causes so much confusion is this syndrome right here. Willing for a time to rejoice in the light. That syndrome causes more confusion in the church than you can imagine. Because what he's talking about here is the stony ground convert. 
The person who hears the truth gets all excited, gets on board with the operation that God has going on in a given place, but only for a time. And then when opposition, tribulation comes along, Jesus said in the parable of the sower, they turn away. They're not really converted. These people cause more confusion in the body of Christ than you can imagine. They cause you to get excited at crusades when they sign the decision card and you call them up the very next day and they want nothing to do with you. They cause you to get excited when they sign up to help out in something in church and then you sign, one Sunday they don't show up and then they're vanished. And you wonder, well, isn't God working in their life? They cause people to go to the marriage altar, two people, and commit their lives one to another until death parts them, only to find after the wedding that one is not a Christian at all, that the going gets a little rough, and they have no heart for God whatsoever. But now, you are bound to this person, and you're a Christian, and you're a real Christian, and now you find out they're not. They were only willing to rejoice in the light for a very little time. These people caused so much confusion in the body of Christ. And they were in John's ministry. They were in Jesus' ministry when he said to those people listening to him by the Sea of Galilee, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot be my follower. And all of them turn around and go away. He turns to his disciples and he says, You guys, the ones that stayed with him, are you going to leave as well? And they said, Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And how many were in that crowd? Oh, maybe 12 and a few others that aren't famous. Handful of people. These people are always causing confusion. I have found the best anecdote for the confusion is to understand they are with us all the time. All the time. And I am not so quick anymore to validate people's salvation as I used to be. There are many who are willing to rejoice in His light for a season. And now I don't validate anybody's salvation because I'm not God. And I don't know anybody's heart. I let God validate the salvation. I tell people, you don't stop seeking God until you know without a shadow of a doubt because He by His Spirit has confirmed to your heart, you are His child. And until then, you must press on. Press in and press on. I used to say, oh, don't let the devil rob you of, of knowing you're God's child. We used to pray with people to receive Christ, ask Christ into their life, and then tell them immediately after the prayer, don't let the devil come and tell you now that you're not God's child. Because you are. But then I would see them go away. No change whatsoever. And then try to call them back to fellowship with God. And they would say to me, Oh, hold it. You told me after we prayed not to let the devil try to convince me that I'm not a child of God. It doesn't matter what I do now. I'm God's child. Now, are you trying to imply that I'm not when you're the one that prayed with me and told me never to let anyone try to rob me of that? Who? <laughs> Boy, that's trouble, isn't it? Many people like this. And if you know that they are there, it will alter the way you move through the body of Christ and minister. And you'll find that you won't try to get people that were never really converted to be on fire for God when they are wholly unable. And you'll quit banging away on them to get committed and do something for God and you'll start talking to them in terms of you need to get converted and come to know God. 
Many of your relatives, people in your families, ex-husbands, ex-wives are in this category. And that is why they are ex-husband, ex-wife. I can't tell you how many people I talk to after services that burst into tears and say, my husband is a Christian and he's divorcing me. He's running around with another woman. Oh, he's a Christian. I'm sorry. He's not. Because the Bible says no adulterer is going to heaven. That's as plain as it gets. You don't have to translate that. That's what it says. I remember saying that to an individual that I know very closely. And she divorced this guy, Christian guy, was running around with countless men. And I said to her, I called her up and I said, I said, you know, for 10 years you have claimed to follow Christ. Now you live with all these men. You're strung out on drugs. You're telling me you're going to heaven? Yeah, that's right. I said, let me read to you what my Bible says. No adulterer will enter the kingdom of heaven or adulteress, and that is what you are. So what do you make of that? Don't judge me, brother. Came back on the other end of the phone. I said, I'm not. The Bible is. You're nailed. You rejoiced in the light for a season. And you rejoice in it no more. And you know, that's been now 15, almost 20 years. This person has remained in the darkness. The children have grown up in the darkness. They're heathens. I got the report this Christmas. And how are the children? They're heathens. They don't know God. Oh my. This is, a, is an ongoing problem. We need to understand it so that we might adequately and rightly pray for these people. And see them truly converted. You know why? Jesus said it, I say these things that you might be saved. He wants them saved. He wants them in the kingdom. And he doesn't want those of us that are truly born again walking around in some kind of a a sentimental, syrupy, loving fog, you know, saying, well, you know, they love the Lord. They're just not loving Him much right now, you know. God doesn't want us operating like that. You know why we're in a warfare? We're talking eternity. We're talking hell. We're talking heaven. We're talking the most important thing in all of life. So may God help us to understand there are those that are willing for a time to rejoice in His light. And when they depart, we need to pray for their conversion, not for some recommitment. And I'll tell you another thing. You know, I mentioned the crusade, the signing the card thing, the prayer room signing card, whatever. It doesn't bother me. You know, some people say, well, you make a comment like that, then it would seem that you would be against the invitation system and all of that. I say, no, I'm not. You know why? Because many recommitments are real commitments. I've talked to so many people who have said, you know, I walked the aisle, I cried, I prayed, and I never changed. For five years I walked the aisle, I cried, I prayed. I've signed every kind of decision card they've ever made. But I never knew the Lord until such and such a night when I went down that aisle and I cried and prayed, and I signed the card, but I was a different person when I signed the card that night, and I've been different ever since, and that was seven years ago. You know, that kind of thing. And they're still going strong. So what I get out of that is many recommitments are real commitments. Because, you know, this whole whole discussion that goes on about invitations and decisionism and all of that, and you can just, you know, throw the whole thing out as being worthless and point to the recommitment thing as evidence. Or you can say, hey, Christ is being preached. 
People are responding. Some will rejoice in the light for a season. Others will come out of the darkness into the light and stay there. And that's what this is all about. So, fine. Want to call them up forward? Want to send them to a prayer room? Want to call them to an altar and a crusade? You want to have them write on a card? Whatever. We're trying to get people into the kingdom, and that is so critical. And if we understand this syndrome right here, we will be wiser, and we will move sharper, and we will become, in the long run, more effective, and we'll be more direct in our ministry. I think it's so important. Well, none of this is in my notes, so (laughs) I should not stay with this any longer. I should move on to something else that's here, I guess. So that's the witness of John. Then there is the witness of his works in verse 36. Jesus says, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You see, these works set him apart as God. Nobody ever did things like Christ did. I mean, let's just talk about his miracles for a minute. I mean, his works really include his whole life, right? I mean, his whole life and his ministry for those three years of public ministry. Everything he did, everything he said, everything he taught. But think of his his miracles. Let me give you six quick thoughts on his miracles that point to the fact that he is God. They set him apart. First of all, their number. They weren't few, they were many. Jesus went through the land of Israel, Palestine, inhabited by Romans, all of that. But he went through the land wiping out disease, and it was everywhere. You know, these diseases that make you go blind, these diseases that bend you over like a horseshoe, like that woman who'd been like that, these diseases that cause you to, you know, get gangrene, they cut your limb off. He went through healing all these people. I have no doubt in my mind that there were some people that had no hand. He gave them one. You know, that's no different than healing the guy they lowered down through the roof on his mat who'd been there for years because he had to recreate everything in the guy's body to get it to work right, you see. He did thousands of these miracles. They were many in number. A second thought is is their greatness. They weren't little. There were mighty interferences with the normal course of nature. I mean, when Jesus, the Bible says he took a little mud and put a, the King James says he put a little spittle on it. <laughs> when, I don't know what the NIV says or the Living Bible, but, you know, he got a little saliva and he put it on the mud. Now, that's different, isn't it? Jesus is so unique. But he takes that and he, he makes a little potion out of it and he rubs it on this guy's eyes. And then tells tells him, go wash. And he washes and he comes back seeing. You know what he did? He gave the guy new eyes. The guy was blind. That is not a little thing. This is not some psychosomatic change in the mind that can create a temporary change that looks like a healing. We're talking about a big, great healing. A third thing, not only their number and greatness, but their publicity. The fact that they weren't done in a corner, they were out in the daylight with thousands of witnesses very often. People walking all over each other, the Bible says, so many of them, just to get to Jesus. And a woman touches the hem of his garment. Well, this is not done in a corner. This is done in the middle of everyone. So that what happens then is they become undeniable. 
And then there's the character of his miracles, always works of love and mercy and compassion. He raised the widow's son, the widow at Nain. He raised her son from the dead purely out of compassion for her. The Bible says looking at her he had compassion and he raised her son from the dead just because he felt bad for her. You look at the nature of his miracles, it's incredible. And then uh, the fifth thought is their direct appeal to man's senses. They were visible, they could bear any examination and they were intended to be signs pointing to Christ's deity that he was sent directly from God. And the sixth thought I like is their artlessness. I love that. By that I mean they weren't staged mechanically. These things weren't set up. They happened in the natural course of his ministry. Blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road is shouting out, you know. And everybody's bugged at him because he's shouting at the master. And Jesus, hold it, hold it, hold it. Let me go talk to this guy. And he heals him. Nothing prearranged about them. So his miracles are very much works that point to his deity and set him apart. And you don't find anything on the pages of the Bible that would imply that the people didn't believe he was doing these things. I mean, even his enemies knew it was undeniable. So that even his enemies in the end said, well, they couldn't deny he was doing it. So they said, well, he's doing it by the power of Satan. But that's so obvious that nobody ever came along and did that kind of ministry under the power of Satan as to be ridiculous. So his works set him apart as God. And you know his works continue to this day. You look at the other works of love and compassion and mercy and truth, and you look at the orphans' homes. I got a, a card and a letter this week from Rose Martinez in Thailand, and she was rejoicing. We had sent her some more money from our church for the kids so that they could have sweatshirts and things at Christmas. She was just rejoicing that our church had again sent her several thousand dollars. She was saying, I wish you could all come on a big jet and come on over and just join us here and be with us. I love you all so much. And I was so blessed. I thought, here's Christ at work in Thailand in this orphanage. Through this woman, his works go on to this day. You think of all the missionaries we have overseas and all that are planning to go and all the missionaries from churches around the world. That is an outreach of the heart of God to the lost. I say these things that you might be saved. You see, his works go on to this day and they testify of the deity of Christ. I read about a, a prisoner in a state penitentiary, penitentiary and he came to Christ. He was a very evil wicked man and he came to Christ he started taking a Bible correspondence course with some of the other prisoners and then when they were time to graduate the uh, prison chaplain put together a graduation ceremony cap and gown and everything made a big deal out of it you know to bless these guys during the ceremony some of the friends and relatives of the prisoners attended the celebration and there was a little eight-year-old girl wearing heavy leg braces supported by crutches. And she came to this guy, who was a new convert in Christ, and she came to him, and she said, Mister, could you get some cookies and punch for me? He immediately sat down and began to talk to her about the love of Jesus and how Jesus went about feeding and loving and healing people. While he was speaking to this little eight-year-old girl, she looked up at him and said, Mister... If Jesus healed all those sick people, then 
If he still lives today, why can't he see that I'm crippled and heal me? The guy said, Oh Lord, what am I going to do now? He felt the urging of the Holy Spirit. It's a new Christian. And he said, Lord, what do you want me to do now? And then he looked at the little girl. He said, Would you like me to pray for your legs? Oh, yes, she said. And as she said, oh, yes, she starts taking the braces off her legs. And he's thinking, oh, hold on now, honey, you know, don't hold it. <laughs> and the simple faith of that little child inspired him. And he placed his hand on her head and he began to pray. And he said, I felt the power of God there with us. And that gr- little girl started praising God. And she bolted out from under my hand and started running around the room without her braces. She held her crutches over her head and ran all around the visiting room. The child's mother, who was in the next room, heard her daughter shouting and thought something was wrong. She rushed into the room and she saw her child running around without crutches or braces, and she fainted right on the spot. He was writing this letter, this inmate, to Ray Steadman, former pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church, and he said, Brother Ray... I just wish you could have seen the people's faces. Everyone saw this girl as a poor crippled child. They didn't know what to make of a miracle happening right in front of their eyes. And then Ray Steadman added this note. He said, I've kept in touch with this man since then, and the little girl has returned to visit with her mother. She now walks normally. The prisoner has made no effort to publicize this incident or exploit it in any way. He simply rejoices to know that the power of God is still manifest today as it was in Jesus' time. Jesus is alive. He continues to work. And in the face of all the charlatans and rip-off artists in the church and phony healing ministries that go on, he continues to do the real thing. And he does it when and where he wants to as his people respond in faith. But the bottom line is these works set him apart to show him as God. And that is who he is. He is God. So the testimony of John is a strong one. The testimony of his works is indeed a very strong one. And the final one is the testimony of Scripture. And I got to thinking about this, and I began to realize a little while ago today, not very long ago, that if I was to rush through this, I would do a grave injustice to the testimony of Scripture. What is in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ is absolutely staggering. And he points there as the Father's witness of him when he says, Search the Scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me, and I'm the one that gives eternal life. That, to me, is worthy of one entire message. I don't know what you feel about it, but that's the way my mind works. So you become a victim of that, and it will be so when we return again to John chapter 5. I want to use that as our meditation for our next message here in this chapter. Search the scriptures. They testify of Christ. And we've been doing that tonight, and the testimony is marvelous, isn't it? Do you know him? Do you know his love? Do you know what it's like to pray and feel the life of God come into you and know in that moment you will never be the same? But you will not, you cannot, you won't be, because God has come. That's the most important moment in every human being's life. And if you haven't had that moment, today's the day of salvation. 
Open your heart. Ask Jesus to forgive you for your sin. Salvation is not mystical, and thank God it isn't. It isn't some long, endless road to nirvana, one lifetime after the next, some hidden philosophy you've got to figure out. No, it's this. Believe on Jesus Christ that He died for your sin and rose again. Confess to Him that you are a sinner and that you know it. And ask Him to forgive you of those sins. And be willing to turn from your sins and follow Him as the Lord of your life. And if you're willing to come to Him on those terms, He will take you and remake you. And He won't let you go from now and on throughout all of eternity. Don't put Him off anymore. Don't push Him away. And don't be one who's willing to rejoice in the light for a season. Don't stop until you know God more intimately than you ever dreamed you could know Him. And don't ever be one of those people who goes through life saying, my religion is something intensely personal to me. And I don't like to talk about it with people. If you don't like to talk about it with people, you don't know the Christ we've been talking about today. Because He becomes the all-consuming topic of your conversation for the rest of your life as you get to know Him. He's something you want to talk about with anybody that will listen when you really do know Him. Open your heart to Christ today. Did we pray? Well, then let's pray, shall we? It would only be right. Father, thank you for this time together and your word. Thank you, most of all, for Jesus Christ. Lord, as we picture you squared off with those hard-hearted, plotting murderers and saying to them, I'm telling you these things because I want to save you. Our hearts are melted with your love. And how we thank you, Lord, those of us that know you, that in your patient love you waited for us. You didn't write us off. You didn't push us away. And even as we were hostile to you and cursed your name and mocked you and denied you, you were still working on our hearts to draw us to you. And so, God, thank you for your drawing power of your Holy Spirit and your love. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Savior of our souls. Thank you for a new life in you. And we do bless you and praise you for all that you have testified concerning yourself here in the Gospel of John, that we might go on to know everything about you that we can possibly find out and use it to draw us nearer to you in this lifetime on this earth. And we ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. And for your sake, amen.